Hi everybody, JP here with Dr. Ann Stroink, current president of the AANS, who's here to tell us about the exciting keynote speakers at this month's upcoming meeting in Los Angeles. Dr. Stroink? So our keynote speakers um, are going to include our Cushing orator, and that's J.J. Abrams. Uh, you will see him Sunday, April 23rd, and he's going to cover some of the exciting innovations and technologies in the film industry. One of the questions we have for him and for him to think about is, is that industry disruptive like many of us feel that have uh, followed COVID? So I'm excited to see what's new and what, what he has planned in mind to uh, discuss. The other is the curtsy lecture. This is going to be a keynote on Saturday. Tom Oxley, who's currently the CEO for Syncron, is one of those companies that does blood brain uh, chip uh, technology. That'll be um, a brain-computer interface and how vascular access is now an option for the delivery of brain, uh, brain chips for, um, for a variety of different reasons that um, they're going to outline in terms of is this, this, what is this doing for regeneration and what is this doing to improve patient care. Then um, we will have um, the Louise Eisenhart lectureship as well, and that's Anima at Anand Kumar, and she does artificial intelligence, and we'll talk about how that interfaces with neurosurgery and what we can expect now from AI and what she thinks maybe the future will be. We'll also have some entertainment involved. Um, Will Flannery is going to come in and be at our opening session, and everybody May, may know Will Flannery. He's very popular in the Twitter circle and is considered probably the best medical comedian on Twitter. And we are looking really forward to being with him. We also have another uh, guest coming, Sean uh, Polofsky, and she is an absolutely outstanding comedian. And she will be coming to our NREF uh, uh, celebration that we will also be having. This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome to the Neurosurgery Podcast. Again, we are in person here at Spine Section. I had the delight of running into uh, David Simons. David is a friend of the podcast. He came on before, but it was a remote recording, I believe, right? Yes, sir. Yeah, so now you've had a chance to actually meet JP in the flesh. Um, David, why don't we start by... uh, talking about who you are, and I'm going to turn our listeners' attention to episode 120 called Return to Duty. I met you through what you're doing for advocacy for special operators. Um, it resonates uh, deeply with everybody I can imagine, all my friends and everybody I know, all my professional colleagues. But let's talk about you today a little bit, okay? Uh, and we'll talk about Return to Duty towards the end of this sure, recording. Thank you. Okay, yeah, tell, please reintroduce yourself. Sure, it's uh, David Simons. I, uh, I've spent uh, over 25 years in some fashion or the other, uh, either working um, in the military or in emergency medicine or even in instances in law enforcement. I started out after I graduated from the Citadel in 97, a police officer, and then after 9-11, like many of us in our generation, I enlisted, became a uh, combat medic, and then shortly after, a special forces medic, a.k.a. Green Brewery medic. Um, I, along the way, basically, you can imagine, we started to have our eyes open to things well beyond emergency medicine. 
uh, in operational medicine and through my own personal injury, uh, through a spine injury in 2010, 2011 in Afghanistan, I found myself basically standing at a proverbial crossroads and about to get a uh, career-ending procedure mm-hmm. and uh, had to kind of become my own advocate, if you will, and get educated on a specialty in medicine that, you know, candidly, I was, I was very deficient in, and I'm still on that journey, if you will. Uh, but within that process, what I found was that years later, I didn't realize that, that you know, things would lead to me becoming a clinical educator uh, for an endoscopic spine company. And as a result, being able to see, matter of fact, in cases with you, someone during my earlier time, it really opened up my eyes to options, procedural options that I know that I was not offered, nor were many of um, you know, my teammates and friends. And so subsequently, I found that I thought that was very good medicine, at least something that patients, particularly military athletes, if you will, should be viewed through a lens to be given the opportunity, if they're a good candidate, for that prior to sometimes other career-ending options. And so as a result, I ended up recruiting other fellow Special Forces medics or pararescuemen who also were at certain places in their careers and essentially wanted to transition over and become clinical supporters and educators for gentlemen like yourself, um, because we're used to being, you know, hopefully good teammates and good supporters and advocacy for good medicine, uh, because we really do care about the patient. We've always been a blue collar medic, if you will. And so what we found was that we started referring uh, friends of ours, because I still serve with 20 Special Forces Group out of Florida. I work on the Human Performance and Wellness Unit. Uh, my role within that team is basically helping to connect with other nonprofits, like the one we started with Return of Duty and other uh, private sector solutions. And uh, so the beauty is, is that it's been nice to see how this has gone and subsequently we've been able to help in many instances uh, save careers uh, for fellow service members, particularly operators when the Special Operations Command. Uh, and in some instances, uh, if we can't help them with that to return to duty, we at least ideally, knowing they're very active people, we try to at least to give them the best quality of life we can in retirement. Yeah, that's great, David. I mean, return to duty is such a fantastic uh, effort, and and I hope it grows and and blossoms. That it's so needed. Can I ask you about the educational background? So, if you're a medic in the military, mm-hmm. well, what does that really mean? Like, how how much time is spent in training? What kind of training? What do you learn about? Sure. Uh, when you start out as a, a combat medic, um, essentially they would call them healthcare specialists now, and depending upon where you're assigned. You could be working in facility or in some cases assigned to a field unit. Uh, as a combat medic, you know, the traditional role that you think of, you're going to have pretty much what you're working with out of your aid bag. And, you know, the skill set obviously uh, varies. Uh, a lot of times it's also um, based on how motivated you are. And depending upon the surgeons, battalion surgeons or key leaders you have, they will allow you more latitude. Well, when you go to selection, um, become you know selected and go through the qualification course per se as an army special forces medic or as an independent duty corpsman um, or even as a pararescueman in the air force you at this instance you're afforded another level of training in my instance uh, at fort bragg at the joint special operations medical training center uh, they give us an additional on top of everything that you do in the special forces qualification pipeline you have the phase one, which is helping you to become a special operations combat medic, which in this case basically, you know, gives you another level of advanced skills, field surgery in terms of, you know, doing crikes, uh, chest tubes, uh, you know, cut downs, um, escharotomies, fasciotomies, different things like that you can be able to assist with. 
in a lot of operational medicine because you could be anywhere from the mountains, high altitude to tropical medicine, um, various things. Then the back half of that to actually become a special forces medic is when you start getting into really heavy into surgery, laboratory uh, type things where we're doing our own um, thick and thin blood smears <laughs> for malaria. Uh, you're doing gram staining, um, let alone your charting. It's kind of like we joke at times, it's like a ranger school uh, of surgery during one block where you're definitely, as you guys can relate, being sleep deprived and working with your patients and everything and um, taking them all the way through um, the surgical debridement, circulating, running our own anesthesia, whether it's TIVA or draw, draw over fluoro. And so the intent is at least to always joke and say, you are the best you're ever going to be when you graduate. Mm. And then when you get from there, you typically, we joke and say we deteriorate. But we always hope that once we get to our teams and now we're training under the senior medics uh, and the battalion surgeons and so forth specialists, it uh, becomes pretty fascinating and obviously always very humbling. That's funny. When in as part of medical school, we take a big written exam called yeah. Step One, and so that that's about halfway through medical school generally. And the day I took it, I finished the test, and on my drive home, I called my mom, who loves to pester me with questions about medicine. Yeah. And I said, "Mom, if you've got a knee problem, ankle problem, your stomach, <laughs> today is the day because this is the peak of my general <laughs> medical knowledge." And you're you're right. You're never better than than uh, just then. I said. Fire away with the questions, because in a week, half of this is gone. Yes. Uh, it's time to specialize. But, it's so true. Um, I, uh, I love hearing about the education and the training to become a military medic, but I, wanted, I, I would like, if I could, to peel back even further, um, because we've talked a lot on the show before about the patient you're doing spine surgery for. We, we've talked about doing surgery on professional athletes who have different bodies than most patients in the general population and who have different goals of surgery and what you're trying to get them back to. Um, most patients, you're trying to relieve pain. You know, I, I think that's the most common indication for surgery. But with a professional athlete, you need to get them to a very different functional level than an average American. And I'm sure that in the military community, particularly with special operators, that's also you're, you're dealing with a different physiologic body and you're trying to get that body back to a very different universe of functions. Um, sitting here with you in person today versus our previous conversation, which was virtual, I want to say for our listeners, and I, I say this with respect, you are one of the most calm and still people I've ever met. There is a stillness to you, which for, for those of you listening, exactly as you would expect from your voice, which is very level, very calm, very controlled. And so I wonder not just thinking about the physiology and the, and the physicality of a special operator and a military athlete, as you aptly put it, but the psychology. We, we talk so much about selecting neurosurgeons, training neurosurgeons, and how much you find the right person versus turn them into that thing at the end of training. So maybe you could speak a bit about your friends and colleagues, but even for yourself, were you always this composed? And did you thus gravitate to this field or, or was there something about the process and these experiences that you've listed for us that gives you this sense of composure? I think an interesting bit of reflection I find when I look at, especially at this point in you know, my career, when I'm looking at those that are you know, my closest friends, you know, the people that are still with us, uh, if you will, and um, some of the common threads you know you often look at 
And it's interesting because a lot of them, when we reflect, regardless of where we lived, if you will, where we grew up, and imagine it's very much like neurosurgery, at least you guys demographic. But what you have is, I know for me personally, I, you know, I had a very uh, challenging uh, upbringing in terms of, um, you know, separated house, home, a lot of different challenges. I was adopted into uh, a Navy family. That is, my, my father's a submariner. And so subsequently, there's a lot of move, a lot of change, um, seeing some of that culture, if you will, for the submariners, if you will, already a different type of psychology for people that will go three to six months. Yeah, we were just talking about like this that. in it is, OR, the submariners, yeah. 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 It's a very interesting, and I, for my times of being on a submarine, I would still compliment my dad when I'd get done and be like, man, that's uh, really impressive. Mm. I said, I understand why you guys have to have your rhythm, your process, your job basically laid out and mapped out so that you basically have your rhythm that you're constantly doing day in and day out, I would imagine for your own sanity. And I would obviously explain the reason why he would have the OCD that he would at home and the home right. and the yard and everything would be inspected the moment that he came home from sea and I would be maintaining it, if you will, as the oldest and the only uh, you know, the son in the family. Um, but to that, I think what it was is I didn't appreciate the time that it was laying a foundation of things and obviously with him being out to sea, and in this case, my mother uh, needing somebody to hopefully be mature and help during crisis emergency. If either of my two younger sisters, you know, had a injury, a real severe injury, or getting ready to go to the emergency room or something like that, I didn't realize at the time that both of us couldn't be in hysterics. One of us basically had to be kind of calm and whatever. Mm. And um, so, with that, I would say that basically, as it progressed along, and then obviously going to you know a school like uh, the Citadel, which is you know pretty notorious for. Uh, A.K.A. The Lords of Discipline, written by Pat Conroy, if you've ever had a chance to a see great a movie book. or with that. Fantastic book. And with that, you know, I didn't even know what I was signing up for, candidly, when I went to there. And the first year, you very much have a prisoner of war type uh, experience, if you will, between sleep deprivation, food deprivation, while at the same time you're supposed to be going and, you know, proceeding through college and getting good grades. Um, you know, the physical component, but mostly what's really happening is the internal component if you will, and so fast forward. Um, I, by the way, I sincerely appreciate uh, the compliment. I, I will go ahead and rest assure you that uh, I, I'm not always. I do the, <laughs> I do the best that I can, if you will, um, but we all have our moments. And um, I think a big part of me is, is you know, I, I recognize faith as a very intimate thing for every human being and all my travels and my work around the world with all kinds of different, um, you know, cultures and different groups. I just know for me, faith is a very deep uh, part with me uh, in a very genuine manner. Um, and then when I take with that, I think the humbling experiences of life have further grounded me. And I think each day I try to hit that reset button um, and I try to be present. It's one thing that I realize it for you know 20 plus years when you're living in a very fast pace, very much I'm sure with the stress of the operating room and your patients and trying to do all the right things and then managing your business and stuff. It's very easy because we want to succeed. We have that type of personality and the intent is actually being able um, to not let anything fall off the proverbial table. Um, but what I'm trying to do better now uh, for my family's sake as well as those around me is, uh, is just trying to, uh, I guess, be steady uh, and, and try to bring some harmony. I know there's enough of the opposite of that in the world. And if by simply, I guess, trying to be um, hopefully authentically just you know calming we can all be able to get through whatever it is that we're trying to do in the challenges of our day so, so david i i would say that you're almost like an ambassador 
because now you are in this role where on a daily basis you're interacting with, um, I don't want to say the highest functioning, but yeah, it's us. So yeah, let's call it the <laughs> highest function, highest stakes yes. surgeries. There really are out there amongst the highest, which is you're in a spine surgery or regularly, yes. right? And you get to see what happens. Like mm-hmm. you're like the fly on the wall now, right? And I want you to help me draw this parallel because I agree with JP. I, I think the psychological aspect is so important. Uh, Mike Capuzzo, who was my mentor, uh, we've had him on the podcast. He he was a submariner during the Cold War, and mm-hmm. he talks about spending three months below the ice. I mean, mm-hmm. a nuclear. For a lot of our listeners don't understand this. A, a nuclear submarine can spend months underwater manufacturing its own oxygen and all that and to be in a small tube people can't even go on an airplane flight right live sleep breathe with all these people no support animals there's no support animals and there's a lot of stuff that needs to get done you're not just on vacation and so you see what happens in the military model the the highest functioning green beret right highest functioning level the army and then you come to the highest functioning level of medicine and you see stuff like things happening in the OR do you think we do a decent job of psychological management or do you think it's just like, do you think there's room for a lot of improvement, I guess? And I'm not asking you to indict anybody. I'm just speaking in generalities here, right? We're just talking about what the situation is. I think an interesting thing is, is that because you know, they say the world over, people are just people. You know, we all have our good days. We all have our bad days. And um, I think what was the interesting thing was I spent a little bit of time, you know, working what we would call within our cadre you know, on the other side of being a candidate, now actually viewing and assessing candidates when they would come through uh, to do, you know, the Army Special Forces training. And so subsequently, you now have a new appreciation. You know, one of the big things that we do, and I don't mean to go off too on the side, but it is relevant, I'll loop back around, is that we're not just assessing people based on their ability to, you know, to be some kind of Olympic athlete or some nonsense like that. It's just basically your ability, obviously, to endure physically, discipline, all those things. But ultimately, one of the most valuable tools uh, that are used as you go through the assessment and selection process, and even throughout the Special Force Qualification course, is peer vows. On one hand, you have... The I'm sorry, what... what peer, peer, like your peer... Peer evaluation. evaluation. Okay, peer evaluation. Peer evaluation. Okay, got, got it. So on one hand, you have the instructors who are observing. They are doing their evaluations. But we fully recognize that we can't be there to see all the little things that happen in the moments when the instructors step away or whatever. There's periods of rest. And so ultimately, that's the reason why we allow the candidates to rank themselves internally on an OML in a peer evaluation. At the very top, you have those that, you know, one or two that are going to get what we call a blue card. And within that, basically, it means that you, at any given time, at a moment's notice, you would deploy anywhere in the world with that person. That's how much you think of them in terms of who their total person concept is, basically their disposition, their trustworthiness, all these things of those intangibles. We really place a premium and on. You said it's two percent. Well, the top two on the on like let's like say if you have a twelve person oh, okay. training so group, 10%. you might have one or two who might actually get that. But on the bottom, you have a corresponding bottom that has the two red cards, one oh or two, God. and you have to That's justify. You actually have to be able to articulate, not like a popularity contest. You have to the way that it should work is to articulate your justifications and reasons. And typically, when you're in that environment and the pleasantries are dispensed, if you will, uh, and you're getting a chance to see people when they're really tired, they're hungry, they're stressed, their bodies are aching or they're injured, maybe even trying to mask injuries because they don't want to get recycled. And so within that, what ends up happening is is you really get a chance to see 
a snapshot of what a person will do, like you're saying, when you're in the operating room and all these different life stressors are going on. And so as a result, as you go through it, you get a chance to evaluate both the, the person to your left and right, and the instructors get a chance to see a peek behind the, the veil, if you will, of what's really going on. Is there, is there a utility and value? Like, is it purely blue's better? Like, is there a utility to the red card people? Like, I mean, do they have some skill that the blue card people don't no, have? No, in this case, basically, it's just you are essentially somebody that they do not want to go anywhere in the world with. Really? They do not want to deploy with. They don't want to. There's a personality trait. There's something that's going on there. You're not carrying your end of the whatever. Uh-huh. You just fill in the blank. But essentially, there's, there's qualities, traits or things that are going on that make the majority of the team or enough people on that team because you could have different people ranked wherever because you're doing it as an individual and you submit it anonymously. Uh, But in the end, essentially what happens is you have, like the same way you would write an objective report, you have to substantiate the why you would not do it. You can't just say, I don't like this person. And what happens to the the red card people? So in that case, basically they get reviewed. The the instructor will come back and counsel them and say, hey, oh, by the way, this is where you rank out of your group of 12. This is the, the comments that we're getting back on you. And if it corresponds with the things that they're saying, then they start to kind of get an idea. Now you have somebody that these are going to get recycled or potentially what we get called NTR, never to return. Mm. In other words, that's basically goodbye, thank you for trying out, but you are not a good fit because there are certain things that we're looking for because of it, like you say, it's high stakes, high risk, and ultimately there's a lot of things that we're going to ask of you and we need the people around you to trust you. And to be clear, these are special operators, so they just they recycle back to the mainline military. We'll know what it is in their case. They're, they're volunteers because we're all volunteers. Uh-huh. In this case, you have volunteered to try out to become a Army Special Forces soldier. And so essentially this is kind of like a control mechanism if you will, to help with the vetting and selections assessment process as it goes on. As we always say, you're always being selected. In mm-hmm. other words, you never arrive. Yeah. You are always being basically evaluated whether you belong here or you don't. And essentially what it is, it's a commitment to excellence. And that happens after, let's just say, people are familiar with the generalized popular concept of like the hell week for Navy SEALs. Mm-hmm. This is after that. Well, this basically goes through. Basically our version is uh, assessment and selection is kind of like you kind of equate it to that. Uh, and then after that, it continues to keep going on and during through all the way to the time that you graduate. I mean, literally right up until the very end, you do the final exercise, what's called Robin Sage. You are being evaluated the whole time through, even if you're in language school. There's instances, at least in the past, I don't know maybe if they've changed that, but there are instances where you're basically still assessing people because just because you're not in a you know a high-stress operational training like doing small unit tactics or whatever, they still want to see, are you consistently the same person? Because what they're going to be asking of you is ideally, hopefully, it doesn't mean, you know, read some of the news. You'll have people who still somehow make it through or they change on the back end. But ideally, you want to have people that you can trust in very highly sensitive nature situations where you are a representative of the United States or the U.S. ambassador in a given local area. And you hope <laughs> that who these people you're entrusting, in this case, you know, senior enlisted, you know, non-commissioned officers, along with maybe a commissioned officer, to basically be going out and doing very, very high stakes things that ultimately could end up creating either quiet successes for us, being able to help, uh, or at the same time could ultimately end up destroying rapport that we've fought long and hard in order to be able to build relationships where we need them in. And so I guess if I circle that back around as I see that, you know, you know, in the operating room now or even more doing cadaveric training, 
you know, I, I shamelessly throw a plug is that the whole reason why we ended up creating, you know, return to duty is essentially what we were seeing was we didn't realize that we were naturally already starting to assess and select different people that we would say, Hey, you know what, if my back was against the wall or for my loved one, this is who I would send my patient, a friend to, because I know them not only for their hands and their approach, nobody's perfect, but I also have a glimpse of what kind of heart they have and how they approach and they are pursuing this type of advocacy, this type of medicine. And we didn't realize at the time what was being birthed out was we were just organically doing what we already did in the army or wherever. And we were just now applying this in a new arena. And so which we were finding because, you know, to be a part of our network, it's invitation only. There is no funding, no donation. There is no amount that a person can give. The same way you couldn't buy your way into being a SEAL, a Green Beret, or anything else. You have to basically be invited. You have to have earned, in our assessment, that you pass a fundamental litmus test. You are somebody we would allow you to work on us or our loved ones. And essentially, by the association that those members have that are in the network, they can also be able to help us identify other members that have subspecialties or different things. And what it is, it's fostering a culture of excellence. The same thing that we try to do in our roles in the military, we're just basically trying to help tap into that and be a bridge in our humble roles as still either medics or retired medics to bridge the excellence with a neurosurgery to that of the need of the military athlete. Yeah. Basically that is already trying to avoid getting their career ended because of going to see medical and potentially doing a surgery that they're fearful of or they're just uneducated and they don't know. So if they can come to guys that they've trusted their whole lives as that medic on the team, then basically we say, hey, we're not going to tell you what to do, but we will help you to understand the patient education components of the different conservative all the way up to the most extreme options that are out there. And we are going to help connect you with a virtual round table of these members of this elite network that we have, very collegial, very... Uh, collaborative the way that they work and essentially help to raise the bar of uniformity of the type of standard and quality of care that we can be able to offer, particularly within this unique patient population that are very much like professional athletes. But in this case, basically, we're just trying to be able to give them that and a return on investment for the U.S. government that they've already invested a lot into these service members. Yeah, um, that is just a fascinating look into the ongoing selection process, as you say, and those peer evaluations, we have that in medical training. We have that within residency. And we even have a question on our peer evaluations, would you allow this person to participate in the care of a family member or loved one? And I'll tell you frankly, finding a resident who takes those evaluations seriously is a hard task. We're we're busy. We're learning how to do surgery. We're working crazy hours, like Dr. Wang said. We blow through these evaluations. Go, oh, yeah, these are... This There's is not my enough skin in the game. Right. There's no skin and, in the game. And that's us. exactly what I want to ask you about. This. It's so funny how we, we have these themes and these conversations that keep resurfacing. But Dr. Wang and I have been talking frequently about how when we face risk in surgery and we're thinking about now evaluating our peers... We can't be injured, right? We could be financially injured. We can be reputationally injured, but we're not under physical threat. Whereas even the, the way that question is posed in the peer evaluation you're describing, I would deploy with this person anywhere, which means I would rely on this person in a life and death situation to have my back, or I would never work with this person. 
And we say within residency, oh, I, I would never work with you. Oh, I hate work. We just had an interview season. And, and that's how you judge people. Like, I don't want to work with that person. But you're not falling off a cliff or getting shot if you're working with someone incompetent. As you said, it's not a popularity contest. No. There are many people that may not be popular who you would absolutely want on your side. Yeah. So I imagine these peer evaluations are taken very seriously. So th- this, is, this is all just your experience and um, anecdote. But... If you look back on the results of peer evaluations that you saw during your time, how frequently were people getting blue and how frequently were people getting red? I imagine both of those would be pretty rare, right? It is pretty rare. And oftentimes there you could, in many instances, you could really start to see the trend of the traits and the qualities. As you can imagine very much, I'm sure the same for you all. But those that were getting the blue cards, trustworthiness, uh, obviously, the reliability component, uh, selflessness in terms of willing to do things, even when perhaps whether it was missing a meal, whether it was taking time to care for another um, teammate or something when you would otherwise would be losing time to sleep or doing something, but just simply an authentic putting the needs of the mission and the team first. There's a really great book. I highly recommend it out there. Uh, Pete Labor wrote it called The Mission, The Men and Me. And basically what it talks about is the priority and many of our guys are very hardwired in this way. The mission is first. In this case, he would refer to the men, but it would be the team second and then me last. And he basically talks about basically his first commander that he had and he put that up on a board, wrote it up there in that very order. Top the mission, the men and me, and he drew a line between them and the, and the continuity of that. And in this case, what you find is that people who authentically, when they're in the environment, the cameras and bragging rights and all this stuff are nowhere to be found, and you really find out what a person's really like. That's where you see that that trend of that constant person consistently does that peer vow after peer vow after peer vow. They're usually up there on the top. They may not necessarily be the fastest, the strongest, or whatever else like that, but they obviously cover the load and do what they need to. But ultimately, it's character, and subsequently, those that are towards the bottom that you're getting the red cards, oftentimes it's the exact opposite. There are trust issues. There are perhaps maybe some concealment, some deceit, mm-hmm. you know, stealing, things of that nature, or sleeping, or constantly getting you know, the team in trouble because they basically are selfish. You know, We're all tired, we're all hungry, we're all whatever, miserable, whatever it is. And we often joke, and I imagine the listeners that are out there that you know can relate regardless of your field, you find that the people who really operate the best, once it's showtime, it's game time, are the people that it almost becomes more comical. The worse that it gets, the more miserable that it gets. We're the group of people that are sitting around almost laughing to one another going, hey, cool, bring it on. I know I'm in this and I'm committed, and the people that are around me, we will go all the way until this just can't go anymore. Whatever's going to come, it's going to be, and we're going to be all right. Wow, David, I mean, what a great sentiment and, and sharing that with us and giving us some, some, a, a glimpse. Thank you for your service and, and for all your colleagues who keep us safe and help America project the importance of democracy and freedom and, and what we all believe in. Um, I do want to give a plug for two things. You work for a fantastic company at Rise Family, Wolfgang Max Rise, if they're listening out there, Joy Max. I uh, love Joy Max. I don't have any conflict with them, but I, I think it's a, a, a very, very important uh, player in our world for endoscopic spine surgery. And of course, 
Um, return to duty, again, uh, we'll, we'll be highlighting at ISAS. I'm actually uh, ISAS president-elect. Uh, the meeting next year in 2024 will be here in Miami at the Lowe's Hotel. Uh, it'll be in the late spring, early summer. Um, so we'll be back in South Beach again. And we're looking forward to a big event. We're going to do something a little bit smaller, I think, in San Francisco um, for the ISAS meeting. I, I encourage our listeners to come to ISAS in San Francisco. Uh, what what David and Jared uh, and Ro- Rochelle and, and your colleagues are doing is really um, something that is special and unique. Um, and, and I hope you guys get a chance. If you see David or Jared or, uh, or Rochelle around, uh, all from Return to Duty, please uh, please uh, shake their hand and, and hear what they have to say. Okay? Thank you for your time, David, and uh, enjoy the meeting. I know you're working here, too. Many thanks to you both, sincerely. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.